What would happen if we chose to really tell the truth about ourselves? Like if we really, really just told the real truth of our lives. I'm not saying that it's true. I'm saying that it's my truth. You're listening to Hammered. I had a prayer running through my mind as they took me through the processing department. I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. It was a childhood prayer, and it started running through my head, kind of like a mantra. And I literally could not shut it off. Now lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And it just started and started. And they took me, these guards took me through this huge cell. And there were probably over 50 men standing in this big, big cell, like a room behind bars. They opened that room and I thought, Jesus, are they going to put me in there with all them? And it started this sort of cat calling and weird shit they started saying all walks of life, all types of men. I didn't see one female. And so they took me through the gauntlet of these men, characters, and then there was like a cage behind this huge room. And it was a cell by itself. It had a toilet, like a stainless steel kind of toilet in the floor. It had a stainless steel looking partition like a wall and a sink and a weird kind of cot looking thing hanging off the wall with these brackets and they opened that cage door and they said okay there you go and they put me in there and they shut it and they locked it well I still had the prayer going through my mind so and I was very numb I remember just being really stoic and very numb and I just kind of stood there and there was kind of like a little stool and I sat on this little stool and it was attached to the floor so it's not like you could like roll around on it or anything and I sat there and <clears throat> I remember these guys started coming up to the the bars to the cage it was like a cage and they start asking me questions, how I got in there, what happened, just the typical nosy butt questions. And, of course, I answered them. I said, well, I had a bad wreck, and I was in a blackout, and I had a high blood alcohol count, and so here I am. And it would just sort of invite more questions and as the day went on, it just kind of got a little deeper and deeper. And then it started becoming very 
sickening and vulgar and sexual. And I just sat there and I just listened to what they were saying. And they were saying some really crazy things. But I had this protection shield kind of around me. And it didn't really matter what they said to me because I had my my armor up and they couldn't get through to it. So I kept thinking, am I going to stay in here like for a long time? Like I had no idea and I didn't ask any questions. I think that's the thing of being like an adult child of an alcoholic or an adult child of a dysfunctional system is that you you don't ask questions. You just learn to keep your mouth shut and you just don't ask. And so I never ask anything. And I was really cold because I had worn a coat down there and I think I left it with Tina because I wanted my work uniform name to show on my shirt. And I was freezing. And I just remember being really cold and just kind of contemplating my life in between pornographically structured paragraphs coming from these guys' mouths who I wanted to punch in the face. So I would say probably 12 hours or so. It seemed like a really pretty long time Two guards came and they unlocked this door, this cage door, and they said, all right, come on, you're going with us. And they retrieved me and walked me back through the gauntlet of people. And as I was leaving, I had kind of befriended this one guy. He was probably 15. He was a young guy. And we looked at each other and said bye. And he said, good luck. And then I went on out and they took me back through the processing area and they said, you're free to go. And I walked out the side door and there I was on the streets of Atlanta and it was dusk and it was November, early November, and it was cold. It was kind of cool and I was really cold. So I went to a payphone. I finally found a payphone and I was able to call Tina collect <laughs> and her and Michael found me somehow I think I remember looking up and seeing a sign maybe that said Ralph McGill Boulevard I can't recall but it seemed like that name came out and they found me I had walked blocks and blocks to try to find a phone and so I waited and waited and waited and I remember sitting just sitting on the street on a bench and watching people and looking at my life and thinking, is this it? What's going to happen? And so finally I see that blue Dodge Dart, that baby blue coming down that street. And I stood up and flagged them down and I got in the car and of course, it was serious for like a millisecond. And then we kind of started laughing, which is not funny. I think sometimes, you know, I mean, you have to you have to laugh to keep from crying. I had a therapist one time say to me, 
Do you ever notice how when you're telling me one of your tragic stories that you laugh? And I said, I don't do that. She said, oh, yeah, you do. And I said, no, I don't. She goes, can I be you for a moment? And I said, yeah. And she started imitating me. And she said, yeah, my dad, he got a belt and he started to, "Ah," and then he did this. "Ah," And she kind of imitated me like overkill. But it really struck a chord because I thought, do I do that? And then she told me the guillotine's prayer. And I said, what the fuck is that? And she said back in the medieval days when there would be like two people in the stocks, you know, when they have their hands and their heads hanging out of the stocks and they're getting ready for the blade to drop and decapitate them. She said the two people would look at each other, usually men, and they would look at each other and one would crack a joke. And she called it the guillotine's prayer. And that's when you have to laugh to keep from crying. So after getting in the car, we go down the road and we go back all the way back to the apartments. And I called my job and I left a voicemail on their answering machine. And I told them that I had gotten caught up at the court and it was a long, 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 long day And I just couldn't get to a phone to call. And I was so sorry. And so the next morning, I went ahead and got on my motorcycle and went to work. And when I got there, I went in to explain to Mike what had happened. Now, these people were street smart and they didn't fall off the truck yesterday So he said, come on in my office, Jill. And I remember going into his little office and he had his little desk and he had this little, these little books. There were three little books and they had two little bookends and they were small, like little, maybe like four or five inches tall. Three of them. There was a red one, there was a black one, and there was a blue one. And he had two little bookends, and those, that's all he had on this desk. And I didn't really look at those books, but I just remember thinking, those sure are small. And so I started to tell him. He said, well, what happened? I go, well, you know, I got uh, some speeding tickets, and I had to go to court, and I didn't have enough money, and so... I had to stay a real long time and I just started making up all this bullshit and and he was listening and listening and I said, you know, I think they're going to take my license for six months and they did revoke my my license for six months. And this is the early days before they would take your license for years or whatever, but six months really wasn't that long for what I had done. So he says, well... Um, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that happened. And he said, Jill, but um, I don't think we're going to be able to keep you on. And I said, oh, well, can I just work inside? Can I just go back to working inside like I did before I became a driver? And his eyes started welling up and he started looking at me, not just looking at me, looking into me. And he said, Jill, he said, 
I hate to do this, he said, but I really, really, I'm doing this more to help you than to hurt you. And I said, yeah, but Mike, I said, I I, I need my job, please. I, I really need my job. I mean, I've got so much and I want to get my own place because I'm still living with my dad. And I start just backpedaling, just trying so hard to convince him to keep me. And he said, there's a group of people that get together and they talk about this kind of stuff. And I know a lot of people young people, as a matter of fact, that go to these groups. And I said, what kind of group? And he said, well, it's it's called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I just immediately, my back went up. And I go, well, I don't think that, um, I don't think that would really help me. Uh, I just, you know, I know that I'm strong and I know that I can probably you know, quit this whenever I want, but that's not really, I mean, I just got these speeding tickets and he just kept looking at me like he knew. And so he kept trying to explain to me, and there was a young guy who had played high school basketball at one of our rival high schools. And he mentioned him, which he broke his anonymity looking back and he really shouldn't have done that. But I think he was trying to tell me that there are other people that are my age that have gotten help. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't hear it. And so he opened the drawer of his desk and he said, well, I'm going to go ahead and give you this uh, gift certificate that we were going to give you all for Thanksgiving. And it's a Kroger uh, gift certificate. And he handed me a gift certificate for a hundred dollars for Thanksgiving. And so he stood up and he came around the desk and he hugged me. And Mike was a big, tall guy, kind of heavy set and very sweet. And I turned around and I walked out of there and I got on my motorcycle and I went back to the apartments. And I went to Tina's, went straight to Tina's apartment, knocked on the door and she rolled to the door. What are you doing here? Because it was daytime. And I said, hey, can you take me to the store? And she said, why? And I go, I've got this gift certificate. Let's go to the store. And so she drove me to Kroger. And I proceeded to buy every kind of alcoholic beverage that I could buy. Champagne, beer, wine. She goes, what are you doing? And I go, we're going to have a party. And she said, what kind of party? And I said, we're going to celebrate me losing my job. And so we got up to the checkout and the person was kind of looking at me. And I remember saying, we're having a party. See, I always had to explain. I could never just go in and buy like a pack of cigarettes or buy beer or any amount of alcohol that was over a human consumption level because I would explain it, see, because there's this shame about being on the planet. There's a shame. There's such a deep shame of being a person in this world that I would have to make an excuse or explain to that person to make them comfortable, to be okay with what I was doing And that way you can't judge me. And I had learned this for, it was conditioning 
years of conditioning. Early on, I'd been doing this, and this was becoming like a, a habitual way of walking through the world. So we got all the alcohol. We got back to Tina's apartment. And I started drinking. And I was just getting hammered. And I asked her if she had any of those Valium that she had. And she had this huge bottle of Valium. And they were the little blue round Valium with a V cut out. I'll never forget those. And she handed me the bottle. I told her I had a bad headache. And I remember pouring those out in my hand, a pretty good handful. And I just ate them. And I chugged some beer to chase them. And then she was looking at me like, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Tina was a little bit gullible. And so I remember just getting really, really drowsy and really, really messed up. And and then I remember her saying, I'm going to call the suicide people. And I said, who? And she said, suicide. And she called the suicide prevention number. I guess she had to call 411 to get it. And I remember her looking over at me and laughing and said, oh, my God, they put me on hold. And I remember thinking about that Rodney Dangerfield thing. And he used to say he has to he had a stand up uh, act where he said, I called suicide prevention and they put me on hold. And I remember thinking that. Well, that was the last thing I remember. And the next thing that I remember I remember my daddy leaning down and I kind of saw him through my blurry, blurry eyes and he was wearing like a stocking cap and like he used to wear like if he was working outside in the winter and he bent down and I was on this couch and he started trying to pick me up. And I remember him saying, come on, Curly, come on, Curly, you, you got to get up, come on. And I remember he got me up and I could not stand up. And then I remember him totally picking me up and putting me over his shoulder. And I'm a big person. And I remember the door. I remember Tina kind of rolling. It was all so blurry. But we got outside in the breezeway and I was hanging over his shoulder and we, he started walking and I remember looking down at the sidewalk and my arms were hanging there. And then I remember seeing snowflakes like snow flurries start coming down around and I could see them dropping on the sidewalk. And my dad started crying and he started saying, oh, Curly, come on, Curly, you got to be okay. Come on, Curly, you got to be okay. And he walked me back to his apartment and it was a pretty long walk. And I remember just hanging there. I remember just hanging there and just wanting to die and just wishing that I would just go ahead and just disappear. 
And that was the last thing I remembered that night. Waking up the next morning, I was just terrified. And I was so sick. I remember just throwing up and being so, so sick. And when I finally got out of the bathroom and took a shower and tried to pull it together, my daddy, he was sitting in his chair in his den waiting for me to get up. And I don't know how many times he had done this where he was waiting and I could tell it was not going to be good. And I came in and he had these little pamphlets sitting on this table. And one of them said, is your child an alcoholic? And I started seeing those pamphlets and I thought, are you kidding me? And I said to him, did you get these for me? And he goes, Curly, you need some help. And I go, what about you? And I immediately, I immediately turned it on to him. And that was the thing. It was like I could not take in any kind of criticism or any kind of help. It was just, I'm going to blame you. And so I started lashing at him. And I called him a hypocrite. And I said, oh, well, you're one to call the big old kettle black. And then it started this argument. And he had been seeing this woman. And her name was Sue. And she drove an orange Corvette. And she worked at Kodak. And so the women that he had kind of dated after the divorce, they always kind of had this little kind of a floozy edge She was pretty, but she was one of those kind of women in the 80s that had like, you know, shoulder cleavage and wore kind of a lot of makeup and had like one of those fake beauty marks and blue eyes. She was pretty, but there was this this little bit of a of an edge and and kind of flashy and with the Corvette and I had loved Corvettes as a child. I liked the Stingray. I liked it when they called it the Stingray. It kind of had a little more class. And now here in the 80s, you got this Corvette, this orange kind of dirty orange color, and it just reminded me of kind of like a redneck with money. And I remember judging her real bad. And she had actually gone with my daddy to some Al-Anon meetings. And that really rubbed me the wrong way because I had seen them together down at the local watering hole called Mile Aways because it was like a mile away from the house. Because when you don't have a driver's license, you have to go pretty close to home And it was kind of ironic that they had opened this place and named it that. Because now that my daddy didn't have a driver's license, he would risk it and drive his truck down to this bar to be with Sue. Or she would drive him in the orange Corvette. So I didn't like the fact that they were trying to point out my character flaws and my alcohol abuse and so with that it just started another argument and I began to just drink more and so 
the pain of all this, it just got more numb and more numb. So I stayed drunk at Tina's with Michael and Tina for about a week, just literally just one constant drunk. I didn't get too high, too low. I just kind of maintained this drunkenness. And then one morning I woke up and I thought, okay, this is it. I got to clean it up. I got myself up. I made a commitment. I'm going to quit. I'm going to stop drinking. Took a shower. There's something about a shower. It's like cleans you up, cleans up your soul. The hotter the shower, the better. So I took a great shower and I decided to go jog. Is There's such an all or nothing mentality in the alcoholic personality. It's all or none, motherfucker. It's all or none. Either you go running and you get your shit together and read your Bible or you just get drunk. So I went on and I tried to run and I was dying. And then I tried to read my Bible. I remember just trying to lay there and read this Bible. And it was just like, ugh. And then I thought, okay, I got to get a job. Where the hell am I going to get a job that's, that's close by? And so I walked down the road and there was this new motel it had just opened. It had probably been open like a week. And it had a big hiring sign. Now hiring. And it was called the Night's Inn. Lord help. And I go down into the lobby of the office. And I said, yes, I would like to fill out an application. And this lady came out. And she handed me the application. I filled it out. And she said, well, let me review it. And how, where do you live? I said, oh, just up the road. You know, I'm not, I'm like a half a mile away and I can be here in no time and blah, blah, blah. And so by that afternoon, she called and said, you're hired. Can you start tomorrow? Oh, sure. And I was going to have to be there super early in the morning. Ugh. And they were going to start me out in the housekeeping department. More or less, I was going to be a maid. Well, that made me so sick. But it didn't really matter at this point. It was like I just needed money. I, I just thought to myself, I've just got to get money because I cannot keep living with my father. I just need my freedom. So I went down and I started my new job and the head housekeeper, she was sort of this frumpy type young woman. She wasn't old. She was probably maybe 30. And so she started showing me all the techniques on how to clean these rooms. Now, I knew how to clean I grew up in a fucking museum. My house growing up was the cleanest house in the world. My mother was a compulsive cleaner. She cleaned in order to deal with her feelings. 
and we picked that up really quickly. We knew how to sand the bathtub with Comet. We knew how to clean things like nobody else. My sister and I used to go clean houses in the neighborhood. If we played with kids and their mother or dad had a dirty house, we would say, can we clean your house? So I knew how to clean. And what was interesting about how she taught me to clean was it was all hitting the surfaces, which I thought was kind of not really cleaning. They had this spray shit that you'd spray in the sink and wipe it down. It was like pink liquid. And she said, you just go in and you vacuum and you change the sheets. And she showed me how to do like the the tucking in of the sheets. I was dying. But I listened and I went along with everything. And so the entire day I went with her from room to room while she trained me. And we came into this one room and somebody had left all this alcohol, bottles and a case, like a half a case of beer. And she said, when they leave things like this behind, you can have it if you want if you want it, or you can just turn it into the office. Well, that's just the last thing I needed. But I went ahead and I continued on with her for that day. And then I came back the next day and I started on my own. So here I am pushing my cart from room to room at the night's end, walking into some of the grossest situations that I had probably been in. I had been in some situations, but this was different. And this motel was pretty new. But the things that people would do to these rooms was just horrific. And so I just sucked it up and did it because I knew I had to have a job. And I would go back and forth to my dad's and I was not drinking. Well, then my dad, he had kind of started seeing this other woman. I don't know if he was seeing Sue and this woman at the same time, but that's a possibility. I just don't know. But her name was Anne, and she was a nice woman, and she was a little more classy than Sue. She was kind of blonde, kind of a hairdo type, but... She dressed really nice, and she kind of reminded me a little bit of my mother. She had a directness to her, and she had she seemed to have some confidence. Not like Sue's confidence. Sue's confidence was a little bit arrogant. This woman seemed a little bit humble, but just like a like a hard-working woman that had some style and some class. And, and here's the thing. I'm so shallow that I have to I look at how a person dresses and carries themselves. And that depends on whether I'm going to listen to them or not. Well, this woman drove through the Knights Inn parking lot. And I saw her and she saw me and she stopped and rolled her car window down. She said, hey, do you have a minute? And I said, yeah, and I came up to the car and she got out of her car and she stood there and she said, your daddy told me you might be down here. And Jill, he's really worried about you. And 
I just want you to know that I'm here for you if you want to talk. And I understand. She said, I really admire what you're doing trying to stop drinking. She said, I have a son about your age and he's kind of going through the same thing. And so what I came to understand, I think, was that my dad had possibly met her at the Al-Anon meeting where they were both there probably trying to figure out what to do with their drunk kids. But she was very kind to me, and she wasn't judgmental. And I had on my Knights in uniform, which really took me back to the Big Star uniform. And believe me, it went through my mind every single day about all I have to do is go back down I-85 to that ice cream shop on the side of the highway. But something inside kept me from doing it. There was something inside of me that was like, you cannot go back there. So I continued with the night's end. It seemed like it was around Christmas and I hadn't drank for several weeks, which was a long time for me. And my dad was, he was being pretty good and he wasn't drinking and we were trying to have some semblance to a home life. And so they gave us a turkey for Christmas And these girls, the head housekeeper and the assistant head housekeeper, they wanted me to go out with them to go to this place called El Chico's and have daiquiris or margaritas. And I'm like, nah, you know, I better not. I better not. They were like, oh, come on, come on. We'll just, we'll go and uh, we can drive you. And they didn't know anything. I just told them I rode a motorcycle. And, And so I said, no, I better not. And And well, then I started thinking about it. And I thought, well, maybe I could just have like a few, you know, one or two margaritas. That's not even like a drink, really. And they said, oh, come on, we'll we'll take you home. And and so you don't have to walk because I'd been walking back and forth. And I told them I just like the exercise. Well, they gave me a ride home. And we pulled up to the house and I go in and I told my daddy, he was in his chair and I said, Hey, I said, they gave us a turkey at work. He goes, Oh, go put it in there. We'll thaw that thing out. We can cook that thing tomorrow, I guess. And, and I said, well, those girls at work, they want me to go out and eat Mexican with them. And I could see this look come over his face, this kind of worry. And I go, we're just going to go to El Chico's down on Buford Highway. It's not a big deal. And he goes, well, uh, all right, all right. And I went into my room and I changed my clothes real quick. And I made up some excuse that I had to go into his bathroom through his room. And I knew where he hid a bottle, some kind of liquor under the bathroom sink. And I went in there and I took that bottle and I turned it up and I chugged as much as I could, as fast as I could. Because, see, I couldn't be social. I couldn't be around people. I didn't know how to socially 
communicate and function. Now I could work, I could work and, and, and be a worker, but I didn't know how to be around a social situation without some sort of social lubricant. So I came out of his bathroom and he looked at me with that look and I just felt it go right into my core and my gut. And I said, well, okay, um, I'll see you in a little while. He goes, all right, well, well y'all, y'all be careful. And he looked out the sliding glass doors and those girls were waiting out in the car for me. And I got in the car with them and got in the back seat and I saw daddy pull the curtain and he kind of looked right through me and we pulled away and the girls were kind of giddy and I call them girls but they were women and I was still you know 23 I think and so they took me to the table and we all sat down and they ordered this margarita and it was huge and it had like a garter belt around the glass. And I remember thinking how stupid that looked, but this thing was like you had to hold it with two hands. And so when they asked me what I wanted, I said, well, I'll take a pitcher of margaritas. And the girls kind of looked puzzled and they laughed and the waitress was like, oh, okay. And I said, and can I get a shot of tequila? Oh, okay. And so I ordered a pitcher and a shot. And then we got nachos. And we're just having a girls' night. Well, little did these two know who they were tangling with. I felt so resentful. I felt like I knew so much more than they knew. And I didn't know more than they knew, but I knew where we were headed and I knew that it was not to heaven. And so we started to drink and small talk and la la la. And they were like, well, do you want to come over to my apartment? My husband's there and I got to get home, but we can go over there and listen to some music and and I said, sure, why not? Y'all are driving. And so we go over to her apartment. And I remember walking in and there was this guy. He was kind of sitting over in the corner and he had a pair of tight jeans. And he's a good looking guy. And he was a construction worker. And he was drinking Budweiser. And so we walked in and she said, hey, this is Jill. And he's like, hey. I was like, hey. And we all started sitting around and he's like, you want a beer? And I'm like, yeah. And so we're drinking and we get on the topic of motorcycles. And, you know, see, I know how to talk to guys from my ice cream days. I've got it down. I know what to say, how to say it. Well, next thing you know, you know, me and this guy are just like laughing and talking and drinking the beer. And the two girls, the wife and the assistant housekeeper, they were kind of in their own little talky world. And who knows what they were talking about? I have no idea. So this dude, you know, we kind of talk and then he says like, well, I guess we're almost out of beer. I guess we should go get some more beer. And he looks at me and he goes, you want to ride with me? And I'm like, yeah. And so I go and get in the truck with him. 
And so instead of going to the beer store, he's like, why don't we just go play some pool? And I said, sounds good to me. So we go on down to Dudley's, one of the places I used to go with the ice cream drivers. And it's kind of a biker bar and lots of pool tables and pretty dark and dingy. And so he and I go in and we start playing pool together and they're playing music. And I remember Blondie, Heart of Glass playing. And I remember just being in there and and thinking, I've got a secret, see. Nobody knows anything about me. He doesn't know me. He doesn't know what he's dealing with. And the drunker we got, the drunker we got, the colors start coming out of who he was and who I was. And of course, once you've had a certain quota of alcohol, a person starts seeming more charming and better looking and more funny. And he sort of reminded me of that actor, Tim Robbins. And he had this sort of little smirky smile and kind of funny and he had a little mustache and he was cute. And the next thing I know, we're turning into the Dogwood Motel on Buford Highway which is probably one of the most sleazy fucking joints ever. And it just didn't matter, see? It just didn't matter because I had already scraped the bottom of the barrel. And so I was just scraping deeper and deeper and deeper. And it was that self-destructive mindset that I could not get myself out of. And I remember thinking how guilty I felt. And I remember thinking about my dad sitting there waiting for me to come back. My poor daddy, my poor trusting gullible daddy, sitting back waiting for me to come back home so we could make that turkey and have some sort of little Christmas, just some sort of semblance to some sort of normalcy. My poor daddy. And I kept thinking about him and thinking about him. And the whole time I got with this guy, I remember thinking how horrible of a person I am. How could I do this? And it got sicker and sicker and sicker. And I just didn't care. And I remember taking a shower with him. And I remember thinking, just fucking choke me. I just wish that he would just do me in. Just kill me. Just put me out of my misery. But no, no. Let me give you a ride home. And he pulls into my dad's apartment, and it was sun was kind of starting to come up a little bit. And he let me out of the car. Hammered is recorded and produced in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Asheville, North Carolina. It's narrated by Jill Haney, produced by Maggie Briggs and Jill Haney, and with sound design, editing, and music by Alexander Rodriguez. Our beautiful artwork was created by Lauren Caddick, 
and we'd like to send a special thanks out there to Minnie and Robin. You can check out our website, podcasthammer.com, and follow us on social media for updates.